Sport on on SAFM. Yeah, it looks bad there in um, West Richards Bay pl- playing. I think Kings Wellington Stadium weather looks terrible, terrible for their game against the Sundowns. Or it looks like it's gonna go on because they're doing a pre-match, um, pre-match interview. So let's see how that one pans out. But anyway, uh, we wanna pay our final respects to the great Pele, and we go over to the US now, where we are joined by Professor uh, David Kilpatrick, who is a historian for New York Cosmos. Good evening from us in South Africa, Professor. Uh, tonight, uh, thank you for speaking to us as we continue to remember Pele. It's a great honor and a pleasure to be talking to you this evening. Good evening. A real honor and pleasure for me to be joining you. Thank you. Thanks, Professor. But but before we talk about to talk to you about Pele, there is a bizarre story or a bonkers story, as the Americans would say, that has come out of the U.S. Uh, this week in uh, U.S. soccer involving the coach Greg Berhalter. He's under investigation for domestic abuse allegations after it emerged that he kicked his then girlfriend back in 1991 when when he was 18. They reconciled and have been married for 25 years now, uh, but the case has come out now. What what have you made of this case? <laughs> Bonkers is an interesting choice of words there, yeah. But uh, for anyone who's uh, been involved in U.S. soccer for a long period of time, uh, it's bonkers as it may seem to people on the outside. It, it's it's unfortunately a, a a symptom of 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 the insularity and exclusivity uh, that's really kind of hampered United States soccer from achieving its mission of becoming the of making soccer the preeminent sport here in the United States. Um, the fact that uh, the manager of the U.S. national team was hired by a, a, an executive at U.S. soccer who happened to be his brother uh, obviously speaks to or opens up accusations of nepotism. Um, and so when you have a situation of uh, a player um, who uh, is the son of one of his former teammates and uh, that player's mother, um, was the college roommate of the manager's wife. Um, well, then, uh, you know, a, a phone call uh, uh, to someone that you think is a friend who happens to be another executive at U.S. Soccer um, may not necessarily feel to the person making the phone call like it's a report to the Human Resources Department. Um, but then I suppose uh, for a, a, a governing body of sport, um, that's what it becomes. So that may sound very convoluted, but basically um, what we've got with this situation is uh, further evidence of, of how uh, a very few people have an awful lot of power with the United States soccer, and it's, it's keeping us from achieving our full potential. Okay, so for those who may be not aware, um, how the story came out is that it was leaked uh, by Danielle Reina, who's the mother of Giovanni Reina, who plays for Borussia Dortmund in the Bundesliga. We see that on SABC. Uh, Reina, I think, didn't start a game at the World Cup and had a fallout with the coach. And clearly, his mother is not happy with that. Is, is that basically what's happening here, Professor? And that's why then she came out with the story so many years later. Yes, but you know, to, to full disclosure, uh, you know, I, I've met her several times uh uh, years ago, Claudio Reyna and I were were two soccer dads sitting on the on the touchline watching our, our our sons being coached. So um, I, I know them; they're good people. Um, and again, I, I, the fact that the Reynas and the Burhalters were so very close. Um, so yeah, basically the, the the accusation was well during the World Cup, uh, Gio Reyna. A lot of us felt we needed his creativity on on the pitch, and I'm sure his parents were no exception to that. Right. 
um, Gio's parents, both his father and mother, played for the men's and, na- men and women's mm. national teams here, of course, right? So these aren't just ordinary soccer moms and dads. Um, but uh, when Gio, when there started being leaks that Gio was being immature uh, in training camp, and that was keeping him off the pitch, um, his mother rather understandably said, or thought, in my view, uh, you know, come on, he's only 18 years old. Will you give the kid a break? I remember you when you were 18 years old, and we gave you a break. I, I think that's where she's coming from with it. So very human emotions, very understandable, but. Um, you know, when you're talking about your national team, it really shouldn't be that personal. Yeah, so 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 because they they were like soccer moms and dads, but they've got a high profile because they played for the national team. We remember um, Claudio Arena also from his time in England with Manchester City. Is there then? Is this a sign of a sense of entitlement then, maybe from the parents? Because why would they get involved in in coaching matters now? Because clearly they're not happy with what happened in the World Cup. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a matter of entitlement from all parties, quite frankly. Um, again, so, yeah, you've got parents who are national team players themselves um, involved in administration of the game. Uh, after retirement, Claudio was uh, uh, in charge of NYCFC. Now he's in charge of Austin FC in the Major League Soccer. Um, he and Burhalter played together. Uh, the uh, Husbands and wives know each other intimately since they were teenagers. So, you know... I know the word blackmail has been thrown around, but, you know, uh, anyone who knew me when I was a freshman in college at age 18 would have a lot worse dirt on me, probably, um, that I I don't really think would be blackmail. But uh, I think these are people who know each other so well and they were very frustrated uh, because, yes, they felt entitled to uh, be included at, at the most elite level of all. You know, and that starting 11 for, for your national team. And, and it speaks to the entitlement and the insularity and the exclusivity that really characterizes uh, the game in the United States right now. Yeah. And, and, and then finally, how is the Soccer Federation handling this matter then? And what have you made of how they're handling it? I, I, you know, I, I think these were parents calling friends uh, about how a friend was treating their kid. Um, and I think the Federation turning it over to um, an external legal ref- legal firm for um, uh, for what should be an unbiased uh, review seemed to me drastic overkill. Um, I think leaking this to the media, these very personal matters, um, I, I don't think it did us any good. I, I remain in the camp of people who think the team would have performed better in Qatar if Gio Reyna were, were involved in the team more. Uh, so these kind of Family feuds don't do us any good, but it's really just a reflection of frustration so many of us have with U.S. soccer and have had for several years now. Okay, thanks for that insight. And then uh, to, uh, Professor David Kilpatrick joining us all the way from the U.S., from New York, to be exact. And we'd called him to talk about Pelé and his impact in uh, American soccer as well as at New York Cosmos where Jomosono, Dr. Jomosono, also played. So we're going to get into that. But before we get into that, we want a little 40-second clip of Pele, I think he was about to be unveiled or just being announced by New York Cosmos back in, back in, oh, he was about to make his debut. Let's play it. His real name is Edson Arantes de Nascimento. To millions of soccer fans, he is known as Pele, number 10, the most celebrated player in the history of the game. He has led Brazil to three World Cup titles, scoring more goals than any professional player in history. Today, he joins the New York Cosmos and the North American Soccer League as they take on the Dallas Tornado, 
with a large crowd looking on at Downing Stadium in New York. The return of Pelé has attracted worldwide interest and given professional soccer in the U.S. a king-size shot in the arm. The return of Pelé today on CBS. Okay, that was Pelé about to make his debut uh, back in 19... Was it? When was it, Katlejo? 1975? Or was it 1977? Uh, Pele about to make his debut. But anyway, um, Professor, obviously we've seen the scenes around the world throughout the past seven days or so, people paying tribute to Pele. How has the reaction been back in the U.S.? Uh, it's been overwhelming. Um, you know, all media outlets have covered it. Pele really uh, became a household name here when he arrived in June of 1975. Uh, soccer was very much a, a, a marginalized sport, pretty much played by, uh, you know, in immigrant ethnic communities. It uh, wasn't part of the mainstream. Um, my father had played soccer in the 1950s and 60s, and he taught me how to play. I was born in 68, but when he first taught me how to kick a ball and control a ball, uh, he did so with a volleyball that we had bought at a local sporting goods store. Um, but, uh, you know, by the time Pelé arrived, um, you know, all of a sudden uh, interest in the game absolutely exploded. Um, so within a year or two's time, uh, it was easy for my father to go out and buy me a, a proper soccer ball. Um, and the, the transformation of the of the American sporting landscape um, was both figural and literal in that. Um, back then when I was a kid and you'd go flying across the United States on a sunny day, you look down from an airplane, you'd see baseball diamonds dotted around the, uh, the horizon. But nowadays, if you take that same flight, you'll see soccer fields in every community where boys and girls, um, can play the beautiful game. And Pelé really taught us to play the beautiful game. When he came in 1975, it wasn't just to try and, and, and win a title. It was to win the hearts and minds of a nation. And he really achieved that goal um, and made soccer, soccer a, a hugely popular participatory sport. Um, again, I've, I've talked about the, the mission of U.S. soccer and feeling that it's being somewhat compromised by insularity, but um, it, everybody plays soccer or has played soccer uh, as a kid in this country. Um, as a spectator sport, um, it's maybe fifth among uh, what we call major leagues here in, in terms of popularity. And uh, the Mexican national team is probably the most popular team in the country, not any any domestic team here right now. Uh, but Pelé really, um, really changed the way the country uh, looked to soccer. So as a little kid, I used to go to school with my Pelé lunchbox and uh, <laughs> uh, playing on my school team, you know, we we all wanted to be number 10 because of the king. Yeah, and actually that's what Neymar said last week, that he made the jersey number 10, not just a number, but a very respected number in football and a fashionable number, also only uh, donned by the stars. And interestingly, he'd come out of retirement or semi-retirement to join New York Cosmos, having played for only one club in his entire career. Was there real belief that it could happen, considering all the factors, that Pele would really come to New York? Oh, absolutely. From day one, you know, uh, it, the North American Soccer League uh, was formed in, in my year of birth, 1968. And uh, by 1970, as the, the great Technicolor World Cup in, in Mexico uh, was being played, um, the, the North American Soccer League lacked a franchise in 
uh, the the most important media outlet here in New York. Um, so the the commissioner Phil Wisnum and uh, a, an Englishman by the name of Clive Toy uh, were charged with the task of trying to uh, lure someone to um, create a club uh, for New York City. Um, at the same time, uh, the the um, the the uh, Erdogan brothers at Atlantic Records involved with Warner, they were looking for a team. So um, in a meetup in Mexico, that great Brazilian team that Pelé and Carlos Alberto um, played on, featured on those great champions in 1970, um, chance meeting at a party there led to the Cosmos being formed in 1971. But when the team took the pitch in 1971, our uniforms were gold jerseys, blue shorts and white socks, just like Pelé's Brazil. Um, that year, Santos came to play a friendly at Yankee Stadium, and uh, Clive Toy, uh, the general manager then of the the uh, nascent Cosmos, uh, in a ceremony before the game, pulled out the number 10 jersey um, and said, Pelé, we're retiring it uh, before you even come join us. <laughs> so right from the start in 1971, Clive Toy and the Cosmos really set out to try to bring uh, the the world's greatest player to what we like to think is the world's greatest city. And uh, he pursued him all around the world for years before he secured his contract uh, to come join us in 1975. But it was all that time. So that the club was really formed, even with those those colors mm. of of uh, gold, uh, blue and green uh, like Brazil uh, to uh, help help lure Pelé here. And it worked. Sure, I did. So, was he the club's first big superstar, or did he come after the others had joined? Because there were some big names at New York Cosmos. Yes, he was the first. We almost had George Best's signature. <laughs> no in way. Fact, yeah, in fact, I think a press conference was scheduled, and uh, uh, the documents were all ready to go. But um, for some reason, uh, George Best didn't show up to sign the contract something must have caught his attention in new york i don't know what it could have been <laughs> i think we all know what so, it was <laughs> <laughs> we might have a few ideas uh but uh, yeah so best and pele were the two that were really being pursued but uh pele was the first superstar and in 1975 he, he joined the team mid-season and he was on a team of of good mostly local players um but people who had to have uh side hustles as we call them right other jobs mm. uh whether it was uh, KLM Airlines or a substitute school teacher or uh, in Shep Messing's case, posing for uh, posing nude for women's magazines. Right. Uh, any way you could make a buck um, for those players. And suddenly you've got uh, the world's most popular player um, making over a million dollars a year, which was absolutely unprecedented and unheard of for any athlete at the time. Um, but again, you know, soccer is a, a weekly sport, I always like to say, in that um Unlike basketball, I could go out there with LeBron James and he's still going to win most of his games. I wouldn't be a hindrance. I just have to hide. In soccer, you can't really hide. And so there's Pelé out there, the other 10 players, not to be harsh to any really great guys or players, but they weren't necessarily up to the King's caliber. Uh, so then the, the team had to start rebuilding and rebuilding and rebuilding or, you know, building the team around him. Uh, so Giorgio Quinalia came over from Italy in 1976 a uh, number of English uh, and, and Scots and Northern Irish players uh, were, came over in 1976 as well. Uh, but then in 1977, um, some more superstars started to come on board, right? Um, 
Uh, Franz Beckenbauer arrived. He joined the team. Um, Carlos Alberto, Pelé's captain at that 1970 um, World Cup championship side, he joined the team. And, oh, yeah, we also had a, a, a really talented South African named Joe Malsono who joined us that season. <laughs> and the chemistry got right um, as the season was going on, and, and they really kicked into gear in the playoffs. And uh, the season ended in storybook fashion with Pelé retiring a champion as, as we uh, defeated Seattle Sounders in the Soccer Bowl in 1977. So it was a great way for, for Pelé to retire, as he should, as a champion. Great, very tell ending to the story after all. But with with Pele having retired, what what would have convinced him to come out of this retirement and go play in the U.S. of all places? Was it was it the money, or did he really buy into the vision and what Americans were trying to do and raise the profile of soccer? Yeah, I, th- I think there's no question that he had offers from uh, Italy and Spain too. I believe um, he if if it was just about money, he could have made that anywhere. Um, now, there was some resistance by the Brazilian uh, government to try to keep him as a national treasure, um, but the, that wasn't an insurmountable uh, obstacle. Um, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger was a big Cosmos fan, so I know he and the State Department uh, worked on our behalf to try to ease things with the Brazilian government. But um, I know other European sides were trying to lure Pelé out of retirement at the same time as well. But Toy, re- Clive Toy, who I mentioned before, really sold Pelé on the idea of, you know, if you go to Italy or Spain, this is something Clive says all the time that was his pitch for those years that he chased them around the globe. If you go to Italy or Spain, sure, you can win a title. Uh, But if you come to New York to join the Cosmos, then you can win a nation. And that's exactly what he did. And I was in that generation of kids, like I said, carrying the lunchbox to school, um, who, because of the, the Pelé effect, uh, really grew up with a love for the game. Okay, great insight there. For those who are just joining us, we are speaking to uh, Professor David Kilpatrick, who's a historian of New York Cosmos, also Professor of English and Sport Management, uh, Director at Mercy College, and we just playing our final respect to Pelé and finding out more about his time in the U.S. that everybody is talking about. We do welcome your voice notes, 061-4104-107, and I believe we've got one ready to play. Evening, Tabizo. Indeed, Pele, the greater, was uh, such an individual that played the game for the love of football. And remember, in the, those years, Tabizo it was not easy for people of color in the Brazil or in the start side of America or throughout the world because of colonialism and apartheid and racism and slavery. But Pele played a great, a great uh, role in promotion of football both in Brazil and America and then you must remember also in America during those days football or soccer was great and then the players were America was attracting many stars throughout the world play players who were about to retire went to the USA and play from that league that consists of the USA and Canada so indeed, it is so the fraternity of football has lost a great man in this Pele, the greater. Thank you. This is Tulani. 
Okay, Tulani, thanks for that. And I think, like I said earlier on, people are starting to appreciate him even more now um, after he's passed away because they, they start, we're starting to find out more about him, seeing all these documentaries and all these films that these TV networks have been saving uh, for his final day and then they play them afterwards and there's so much that's coming out, which is which is remarkable considering how little documentation, documentation there would have been back in the day. And, um, Professor, then I would think that there would have been pandemonium then when Pele arrived in the US. There was one story that I saw, I think this week or last week, that um, I think when he arrived or when he was about to play his first match, he was injured in Boston. Uh, was wasn't his first match, but uh, there was bedlam uh, at the the match in Boston where, um, for whatever reason, uh, the Minutemen were the the team there at the time, the Boston Minutemen. They allowed the spectators right up close to the field. Um, it was a very dangerous uh, situation. So um, I, a, a few of the players who were there uh, that game uh, had told me about that and, you know, the, the worry about the fans just rushing the field. <laughs> You've ever seen Escape to Victory, uh, the way that the film ends, you know. <laughs> uh, I think they were a little worried about uh, that kind of a pitch invasion, that, that type of thing. But, yeah, uh, his first match in New York uh, at Downing Stadium uh, really uh, – decrepit place that uh, wasn't uh, an appropriate environment for a player uh, like Pelé. Um, the, the field, the conditions of the field were so bad um, that Cosmos staff had to go out with green paint uh, before hmm. the game was played. And as after the warm-up, Pelé came into the locker room and almost refused to go out on the field. Now, we had, there was a national television audience um you know, saying that Pelé's first game, you know, uh, there was a, a massive crowd, sold out crowd, people stopping on the Triborough Bridge because it, it still to this day, is, it's called Icon Stadium now. But if you go over Randall's Island, you can, as you're crossing over from, from Manhattan to or the Bronx into Queens, the Triborough Bridge looks over where that stadium was. So there, there would even be, you know, people on the bridge looking down to see. But Pelé was in the locker room. Uh, refusing to go out on the field because he was afraid it had given him some kind of a strange fungus, some kind of a irritation he'd had because it was his foot, his ankle, whatever turned green. And it had to be explained to him that it was just the, the, the green spray paint that they uh, put on the field to try to make it look a little bit better for television. So of course he took the field and uh, uh, scored in his debut. And again, uh, over those three seasons it, it wound up with a fairy tale, but it, it was, it was scenes like that in every city. Um, so whether it was the home debut in New York or yeah the 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 game you mentioned in Boston, everywhere the Cosmos went, um, the crowds came out to see the King, and it wasn't just at the games as well. Everywhere the Cosmos went, Pelé put on clinics. Um, he would you know meet with local players, meet with local coaches, and really spread the gospel of the beautiful game. Uh, that's why if, if you know anybody that's ever traveled in in Pelé's uh, entourage, you, you know you've got to an itinerary or a schedule of, of what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. Well, there's regular time, but then there was Pelé time. Pelé was never on time, never on schedule, right? Punctuality was not a virtue for him, but that was because of another virtue, his humility, his kindness, his uh -huh. generosity. Um, he would always take the time to shake hands with someone, and everybody wanted to touch Pelé. He'd, he'd stop for photos with people. Um, so, you know, it was difficult to get him from point A to point B in a certain time because everybody wanted to share uh, with him and he understood his role. So, you know, in terms of what you're saying with the 
greater appreciation of Pelé. That's one side of his story that I hope people will appreciate too, that, Mm. you know, these debates about who's the greatest of all time, that's generational and it's kind of silly. He really was the first global superstar. um, And he, he understood his role and he lived that role to his, to his dying breath. Right. Um, He understood what he meant to the game. He understood what he meant to the world. And he really embodied that, you know, in his very last game for the cosmos on October 1st, 1977 i was watching on tv i i couldn't go to the game but i was watching on tv and he asked everybody in the crowd there a giant stadium and watching on tv around the world to join him and say um this one word three times and the word was love love uh, love i saw that and I, I saw when that. i was a kid i was watching it i turned to my father i'm like what's that mean why is he why do you say love right years later i got to say to Palais, uh I didn't understand that as a kid, but I understand it now. And uh, I'm really blessed to, to have been able to, to say that to him. I understand it now. Um, I get it. Love, love, yeah. love. But really, that's that's the message. That That's the legacy of Pelé, one of love. I actually saw that clip uh, this week, and I didn't know the background behind it. And thanks for that context. But is that the only English he could speak, or could he say a few words and sentences in English at the time? Uh, uh, when he first arrived, uh, his translator was his dear friend and mentor, Professor Julio Mazze, who is a professor of sports science, um, who had uh, really become involved with him while he was at Santos. So he was a dear friend and mentor, and, and uh, the Mazze family remained really close with Pelé's family. Um, but uh, yeah, Pelé acknowledged his linguistic uh, standards needed to be improved to really achieve this mission. So he enrolled at the Berlitz School in Manhattan and took language courses. And while he was there at the Berlitz School, like uh, uh, John Lennon was taking classes down the hallway oh. uh, to try to learn Japanese, right? So if you can imagine oh. being a language teacher at that Berlitz School oh. and the celebrities that were taking classes there. So no, he Pelé could speak English very, very well, very quickly. He was a, a brilliant man. And uh, yeah, he learned English very well, rather quickly. Okay, and then I'm interested, Professor, to find out um, how the night scene was in New York back in the 70s. I've been there a couple of times. They call it the city that never sleeps. But how was the lifestyle of these players? Were were they rock stars? Were they treated like rock stars at the time? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, the the parent company of the Cosmos was Warner Communications. And Warner Communications had um, the motion picture side and they had the music side. Uh, So... I mentioned before that the Erdogan brothers and Atlantic Records at the time, Atlantic Records had um, Led Zeppelin. Yes. Uh, the Rolling Stones. Um, they had the biggest uh, rock acts uh, in the business and, and they had movie stars like uh, Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand. Um, and these types of celebrities would be regulars in the locker room. Uh, Mick Jagger, in fact, had an official role with the club uh, as an ambassador. Uh, what exactly was his role? Again, um, I've heard stories uh, <laughs> of what he what he brought to the table, but he certainly was able to get them through the front door at Studio 54, which was the real hot spot uh, in in the late 1970s. The Cosmos really enjoyed that that lifestyle. So you know we um, use that term synergy now. I don't think in the 70s we used that word synergy at all, uh, but there was that synergy between uh, the the movie business. Uh, rock and roll 
and sport with the cosmos that um it really all came together and yeah they they enjoyed the uh uh the the debauchery of of the new york nightlife to its utmost they made the most of it <laughs> okay wow interesting just what i expected anyway um let's go to the lines quickly let's go to Durban. we've got peter in chats with peter good evening thanks for 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 calling us as we remember pele yeah thanks uh, you're welcome can you hear me yes we can hear you what would you like to add peter okay okay in 1977 uh, sorry, 79, I was a vice secondary at school in Chester, Durban. And uh, Pili being our uh, role model, and uh, at that time there was no other greater player that we knew uh, besides Pili, you know. So, uh, and we followed his uh, uh, teams, and we named our school team Cosmos. And uh, we won the school tournament. We went up to uh, four uh, different, uh, what do you call the stages of the game, and came to the final and we won. So it was quite a thing. It's a big memory for us. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. That is great. And what happened? Oh, it was a school's team. Yes, it was a school tournament, in a, you know, with different standards. Yeah. And uh, grade uh, 8 to grade 12. And uh, we, I was in grade 9. And uh, we managed to win the tournament, uh, going right up through to the uh, uh, metric level as well. But we won the tom- tournament. Great stuff. Do you remember who was wearing jersey number 10, like Pelé in your team? <laughs> <laughs> was yeah, it you? Yeah, no, no, I was always, uh, well, I, I've always played as a striker. But on that particular tournament, I played the goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff. Thanks for sharing that, Peter. And thanks for the great show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Great stuff there. You see the inspiration of uh, Pele. And even our own, Jomasono, came back and named his team Cosmos. Uh, let's go to the voice notes and we'll, we'll continue our conversation with, uh, well, we're still talking to Dr. David Kilpatrick. Yeah, evening, Taviso. Um, late in the 96, 95, there was a program called The Game of Billion. They were showing games from uh, the previous World Cup, the 1960s, the 1970s, they usually concentrated on Brazil, Hungary, and Pele when going to the States. It showed uh, that guy was the greatest, I can say we can call Maradona, uh, Messi, uh, Ronaldo, but Pele became the ultimate goat. It's Mafika in Stilfontein. Thanks for that voice note, Mafika. Actually, I, I agree with you. I even um, agree with what um, with what the, the professor had said earlier on that these grades are basically, it depends on generation and, and which generation you're talking about, you know. But, but Pele was definitely the original goat like we say a goat stands for greatest of all time that's the term that they use now just to say how good you were so goat so i think pelewa for me was the original goat eh? three world cups nobody has done that before or like like we were corrected last week he was part of a of, of, of three brazil teams that won a world cup um he even won ballon d'or i didn't even know that ballon d'or back in the day right katlaho he won Ballon d'Or, Pele. I saw some stat that he also won Ballon d'Or. So he was really before the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo, not even Cristiano Ronaldo, Maradona and, the, and those guys. There was Pele, the original goat. 
and um, his legacy, I think, will remain forever. And how do you guys feel about, now that we're on this topic, about FIFA President Gianni Infantino saying that every country should name a stadium, should have a stadium named after Pele? Do you think that is a good idea or not? Could it happen here in South Africa that every country must have a stadium named after Pele? And somebody actually tweeted me yesterday to say that, I'm going to try and find that tweet. Apparently, they started in one of the countries, Guinea-Bissau. Oh, Guinea-Bissau. Someone copied, uh, tagged me on a tweet that says, Guinea-Bissau has named a stadium after Pele already. And I think in Venezuela also, they had already started naming a stadium after Pele. But I know SABC Sport um, got a comment from the SAFA president, uh, Dr. Danny Jordan, and he was saying it's going to be tough here in South Africa because they don't own the stadium. So, uh, the stadiums are owned by the municipality, so it's going to be hard to just decide to change the name of the stadium. But is the willingness, should there be a stadium named after Pele or should we be honoring our own goats like Dr. Jomosono, Dr. Kaiser Mutawong and all these guys, you know, um, even the later Ace Ntsoilengo who also played um, in the U.S., uh, uh, Maybe these are the guys that should be honoured. Uh, but I don't know. It's up there for debate uh, that uh, FIFA wants every country to have a stadium named after Pelé. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, before we go there, it is goalless still between Sundowns and Richards Bay. Only 13 minutes have been played so far. And also no goals in Dobsonville between Solos and Chipper. Here, there and everywhere. SAFM 105 FM in Peter Maritzburg. Sport on on SAFM. Okay, we're still speaking to Professor David Kilpatrick. We're just trying to reconnect uh, with that line um, in the US. Okay, we've got him back on the line here, uh, Professor. And we're going to take it forward a little bit because you've already mentioned, Professor, our very own Jomosono at Cosmos in the late 70s. And from all we are told, he was also a big star player for New York Cosmos. How much do you remember about uh, Jomoson and his times there? He was absolutely dynamic, uh, incredibly promising talent that uh, when he, when he first joined the side, um, his first match really with the, the team uh, in, in New York, we moved across, I'd, I'd mentioned the, the terrible stadium uh, that Pelé uh made his debut at in 1975 mm. at Randall's Island. Well, the beginning of 1977, uh, we moved into sparkling brand new giant stadium. And the first ever event there was a, uh, a tournament played before not that many uh, uh, fans in a real big downpour against the Haitian team called Violette. Um, and uh, Jomo Sono scored in his debut and uh, ran behind the goal and did a, uh, uh, kind of a distinctive dance that uh, nobody had ever seen any goal <laughs> celebration like that before. <laughs> and uh, um, he was uh, really young. I think he was uh, 2022 uh, when he joined us. And um, again, 1975 when Pelé was, was first with the team. Um, yeah. That, that team wasn't structured to play around a player like that. The next season in 76, a whole bunch of talent was brought from Britain and there wasn't really the chemistry. So then uh, I think Jomosono was brought in in hopes of uh, bringing a player with great creativity and, and maybe even to, to take over for the king. I think that might have been the, the hope and the expectation. Um, 
but you know fitting him into a side where pieces to the puzzle kept kept building um you know we we got uh we got franz beckenbauer into the side we got carlos alberto added into the side um and then for the 78 season even though Pelé wasn't there you know we we picked up dennis Tuerk, we picked up vladislav bogusevich um and jomo moved on to to colorado caribou who um you know dave clements who is a northern irish player with us took over as head coach there and, and lured him there but clive toy when he was general manager of uh of uh, the cosmos he left after the 77 season as well and um um you know he they he had always been very fond of him and brought him along even had him join him uh, in toronto so yeah he was a really dynamic player um and uh actually i was talking to clive toy this morning he told me an amazing story about how um as they were planning to um take a world tour for Pelé's retirement this was in between the winning the championship game and then Pelé's farewell game in October uh, we were to travel to China and uh, the Chinese government uh, refused to allow Jomo Sono to oh. play there uh, because he was South African yeah yeah um, uh, and Clive Toy to this day remains so upset um, understanding why uh, the Chinese had a stand against apartheid, but um, was so frustrated Jomo couldn't make that trip, couldn't couldn't go there. Uh, but yeah, he was uh, a, a dynamic personality, and uh, I believe was right on the cusp of uh, uh, signing with Juventus when he, uh, I think, broke his ankle with Toronto, if I remember correctly. But uh, yeah, I always try to follow the Jomo Cosmo scores uh, <laughs> because of that uh, that fondness that that we'll always have for him. Absolutely. And before we we get into that, um, it's interesting you touched the story about China on the story about China because I wanted to ask if if you as Americans were aware of the time when Jomo Sono was there of the challenges faced by Black South Africans during apartheid South Africa, which affected a number of our players from going overseas and and to see to see players like Jomo Sono go over, there was a big thing back in South Africa, especially to Black South oh, Africans. I, I'd like to learn more about that because that kind of closes the loop in a really wonderful way. Um, I'm sure Clive Toy would like to hear more about that too, because um, I know that was a big frustration. You know how, you know, understanding reasons why you wouldn't want South Africans to come and play, but surely the person, you know, person who's a victim of oppression uh, should be an exception to that. Uh, so that's really good to hear. Um, uh, and yeah, I'd like to learn more about that. Yeah, and I know um, he's, he's working on his own documentary now, actually, uh, John Mosono. So I think it will all come out when he's done there. He even sent cameras to Brazil a few years ago, actually, to get some comments from Pele and from his family. And I think he managed to back that. So we want to wait for his uh, documentary to, 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 to come out. But um, how did you feel? How did the Americans feel or the fans of New York Cosmos feel about him naming his club Jomo Cosmos? When did they become aware of it? Well, you know, obviously, uh, you know, you have the Kaiser Chiefs after uh, Kaiser Motong, and uh, it's, uh, you know, we didn't, he didn't keep the colors, uh, but uh, yeah. keeping the name again, I think it, um, I, you know, speaking for myself and a lot of other Cosmos fans, uh, uh, we think it's just the greatest thing. Like, uh, I, you know, the the caller that you had on just a few moments ago, uh, you know, we'll have to claim that title. Cosmos like titles. We like to collect trophies. So we'll we'll take full credit for that school team winning that title as well. No, it's back in chats with Devin. <laughs> he needs yeah, he needs to, to to touch base with us so we can get that team photo with a trophy. Um 
but yeah, you know, I think it's a great thing that, you know, Jomo keeping that love for the cosmos alive and, and have always taken that as a, as a real sign of, of love and respect and, and that bond that, you know, he's part of the cosmos family forever. And he's still the coach of Jomo Cosmos after all uh, these years. Uh, sadly, though, they have gone down to the third tier of uh, South African football. We've got a couple of voice notes here before we wrap up our conversation with uh, uh, Professor um, David Kilpatrick, a historian of New York Cosmos, as we find out more about Pelé's impact in the U.S. and we pay our final respects to him. Good evening, Tommy. So, uh, to the professor and everyone there on the team, as well as the SFM listeners, um, I think that the country that named uh, one of their stadiums after Pelé was uh, Cape Verde because they had said that they also shared the Portuguese language uh, alongside the Portuguese and the Brazilians. Yeah, so Cape Verde. I heard it here on SFM. Uh, it's incognito in KZN. Thank you. Thanks for the great show. Thanks, incognito, for that. Evening, member and Katlehove. You know, when we started seeing these documentaries and everything, I was still at home, and my dad finally told me that, you see what I've been telling you all along, that Pele is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. <laughs> so, yeah, man. <laughs> but in any case, I never saw him play, but uh, my generation will always focus on Ronaldo and Messi. But the issue of renaming stadium, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe because I didn't watch him. But we don't have a stadium named after the GOAT, Jomosono, here in this country. So, I don't know. Hi, SAFM. Yes, Pele, for his record, we can name one of our stadiums. And then we should also name after our own goats. You're right, we've got our own goats here in South Africa, the Jomosono of our kind, the Lucas Hadebes. This is Nikki from Loom. Thanks. Okay, thanks for that. Actually, thanks Incognito also for Cape Verde. Um, but actually, even Guinea-Bissau today named their stadium a stadium after Pelé. So it's two African countries at the moment and counting. Let's see who else is going to name their stadium after Pelé. Um, was, okay, um, Professor, as we wrap up, I've mentioned actually that um, Jomo Cosmos now big club in South Africa with a rich history, of course, one of uh, South African football icons and one of the greatest, if not the greatest, South African players, uh, Jomo Sono. Uh, but the club has gone down to the second tier of South African football. They've been relegated for so many seasons now. And what is the status of New York Cosmos right now? Because when you look at the MLS, you see the other teams from New York. Well, it's it's funny you say that. I mean, the unfortunately, uh, from my perspective, uh, the 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 status of, of Jomo Cosmos uh, uh, being relegated uh, a couple divisions uh, is a slightly better situation than what we find ourselves in wow. uh, with the Cosmos right now. Um, we uh, had a, a few years ago the United States Soccer Federation essentially relegated the entire North American Soccer League. We were sanctioned as the second division and uh, were applying to first division status uh, with hopes of bringing enough uh, clubs in to have a, a proper uh, open pyramid with a system of promotion and relegation, which is the standard and is uh, an expectation with FIFA's statute on sporting integrity. Um, so since that was revoked, uh, since that second division status was revoked, 
there's been an ongoing lawsuit and the club have been on hiatus uh, since uh, the end of, of 2019. Um, well, really 2020. Um, and uh, we haven't fielded a team for a couple of years, but uh, the lawsuit is ongoing uh, between the North American Soccer League uh, against the United States Soccer Federation uh, and Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer is a single entity. Hmm. Um, so to join the league, you have to uh, buy your way in, be approved, that market has to fit their um, their desires, things like that. And uh, um, so the Cosmos are pretty much on the outside right now. And we're waiting to see how this lawsuit will play itself out um, in terms of where we can, what league we can be playing in. Uh, and so again, you, know, you asked me earlier about the situation with the, the men's national team and the dispute of the, the parents of the player with the, the manager. Um, again, this is just another example of how things aren't really functioning properly uh, with the United States soccer. So um, if we were in the third division aspiring for promotion, that would be a better situation than we're in right now where, where we're not playing at all. Sure. And I, I read your open letter earlier in the week. Did you get a response? I think you wrote it a couple uh, of years ago. Yeah, the only response I got from uh, a member of the board and, and – uh, I'll keep that person incognito, but one member of the board said, uh, sorry, I cannot respond to this because uh, of the pending legal action being taken. Okay. So, um, okay. yeah, so in other words, um, we they acknowledged receipt, but nothing more than that. Okay, well, Prof, we're going to have to leave it here just because of time, but we've appreciated the insight that you've shared with us here on SAFM. Oh, before you go, I see there was a South African Steve Wegley there. Do you know anything about him? Oh, of course, yeah. He was a great player. He, he joined us uh, a couple years after play. Oh. Yeah, he, he was terrific. Was it Roy Wiggle's brother? Yes, yes, his older brother, yeah. Because uh, that's the guy I remember from his days in England with Coventry. Thanks, Prof, uh, for speaking to us. It's been a great hour here getting some insight about Pele's impact in the U.S. and in, in, in U.S. soccer. And I think we've learned a lot here and we are more appreciative as we go along, as we find out more about uh, this original goat, like I would say, Pele. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, guys. You can follow him also on social media if you want to uh, read more of the prof stuff and want to hear more from him. He is actually on Twitter. I have tweeted his account. It's uh, Dr. D. Kilpatrick. And uh, talking about doctors, Dr. Phil Mahuma says, best wishes for 2023. I'm enjoying your current interview on Pele. Thanks for that, um, Dr. Phil Mahuma in midstream. And we want to give the last word.